So this is third week in a sermon series on the book of Colossians. And here's what we said so far. Paul wrote this book for a very specific purpose. That, that he was writing to combat the Judaizers and the Gnostics in Colossae. And that, uh, and that his primary message to combat both of those false teachings is very simply this. Jesus is enough. No matter what the Gnostics are trying to tell you, no matter what the Judaizers are trying to tell you, Jesus is enough. And so we've been taking that concept and and we've been seeing how it applies to our lives. Today we're going to answer a simple question. We're going to say, okay, if Jesus is enough, what do we need to do with that in our minds? How does that affect the way that we think? How does that affect the way that we think about the world? How does that affect the way that we think about ourselves? And so we're glad that you are here today. Um, we want to say especially uh, hello to those who are joining us on Facebook Live. We're glad that you're joining us today. We know that you will probably watch online several times before you'd ever consider attending in person. We're okay with that. We want you to know if you have any questions about Tabor, you can send us a Facebook message. We'd be happy to work through that with you. So, um, what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that Jesus is enough? If Jesus died so that we can be forgiven of our sins, and, and we looked at, at what it means that Jesus died last week, and we went into some pretty graphic detail about his crucifixion, what do we do with that? Because the right answer in the wrong context isn't very helpful. Right answer in the wrong context isn't very helpful. I'll give you an example. Let's say Leah and I are in couples therapy, and we are talking with the therapist, and the therapist says, Leah, we can see that you're upset. We can, I, can, I can hear it in your voice. I can see it in your body language. Leah, tell me why you're so upset. And she says, I'm just so frustrated with Tony. Okay, that's good. Tell me more. Why are you so frustrated with Tony. He never buys me flowers. This is a joke. I want to remind you. This is, okay. Anyway, so, so now I've got this information. And there are several things I can do with that information. Leah's mad because I don't ever buy her flowers. Okay, what do I do with that? I can learn from that. I can be more attentive. I, I could learn to think of Leah more often. I could go to Paoli, right? Or I could reflect on that at a flower shop in Paoli. I could take her on a date every once in a while. And yeah, I could even buy her flowers every once in a while. That makes sense, right? Or I could take that information as the counselor says, Leah, Leah says you never buy her flowers. Tony, is that true? And I could respond. I could say, Leah, I am so sorry. I didn't know you sold flowers. That's a dumb joke. I realize that. Okay. I'm willing to admit when I tell a bad joke, and I've told one this morning, I can only ask that you forgive me. I'll try again next week. Let's move on. The point is simple. What we do with the information we're given matters. So what do we do with the information that Jesus is enough? We're going to look at what Jesus means for us this week, how that changes the way that we think. And then next week, Luke's going to preach about how we respond based on that information. So that's where we've been. That's where we're going. And I want to start today in a way that, that I don't think I've ever done before. 
Uh, it's kind of a unique thing. I hope it works. If it doesn't, don't tell me, okay? I'll probably know on my own. But, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you two pieces of information completely devoid of context, right? Just two pieces of information that aren't going to make any sense to you now. And as we go through the sermon, those pieces will start to fall into place. So at the beginning, you're going to go, okay, I don't care about that at all. But by the end of the sermon, my hope is that you will remember those two pieces of information and what they mean for your spiritual life. So here is the first one. The most expensive watch brand in the world is the Patek Philippe. Most expensive watch brand in the world is Patek Philippe. By the way, I can tell that some of you just did exactly what I would do. You got out your phone and you Googled Patek Philippe and you said, I want to know all of it. Tell me every bit of information about it. That's what I would do too. Okay, so that's the first one. Here is the second bit of information. Crows in New York City have high cholesterol. Crows in New York City have high cholesterol. All right. Those things don't mean anything to you right now, but I hope that by the end of the sermon, you will leave and you will understand the connection to your spiritual lives. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. We will start in verse 1. Here's what Paul says. I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ Himself. In Him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you, and I rejoice that you are living as you should, that your faith in Christ is strong. What's going on? Paul's describing his desire for the churches. He wants the Christians in Colossae to be knit together by strong ties of love. And and he wants the Christians to have complete confidence in God's mysterious plan. By the way, that language there, uh, mysterious plan, specific language, those are all buzzwords designed to get the attention of somebody who's going to uh, think in a Gnostic way. God's mysterious plan, the hidden knowledge. And, and, and at this point, the Gnostics are going to say, well, wait a minute, hold on. We're waiting for hidden knowledge. What is, what is it? Is he about to tell us what it is? And then Paul says, it's Christ himself. It's Christ himself. He goes on. He says, it's in Jesus that all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge reside. Again, very specific language. It's trying to get the attention of the Gnostics. But what does that mean? If we say in Jesus, all the hidden treasures of knowledge and wisdom reside, what does that mean? It's kind of mysterious, right? Does it mean that we could say that the answer to any question is Jesus? So if anybody has a math test coming up, I wouldn't recommend trying that. Right? Your, your calculus test, don't write Jesus as the answer for your question because I bet you probably won't pass. Okay? So what does it mean? Is it, is it like the boy in Sunday school? He tried this. Sunday school, wanted, a Sunday school teacher wanted to, to use a squirrel as an illustration, so she said, what is brown and lives in a tree? And, and none of the kids answered. And, and she said, well, it could be a little more specific. What, what has a big bushy tail as brown and lives in a tree? And still nobody answers. And she says, 
grief. I got to make this obvious for this kid. Do I have to spell it out? What's brown, lives in a tree, has a big bushy tail, and collects nuts for the winter? And finally, one of the kids raises his hand and he says, I think I know. And she says, Yes, Michael, please tell me what the answer is. And he says, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds an awful lot like a squirrel to me. What we do with the information that we receive matters. If Jesus is the answer, what's the question? If Jesus is the answer, if Paul is telling us that Jesus is the answer, what questions should we be asking? What if we, what if we asked the biggest questions that people ask? What if we asked the biggest questions? Who am I? What am I here for? What if we asked those questions and we let Jesus be the answer to those questions? Those are questions that people have wrestled with for thousands of years. Who am I? What am I here for? Now, the people in the room who have philosophy degrees or enjoyed philosophy class, that's not me, by the way. It's no offense to you, Paul Axton. Uh, it's not the way my brain works. I don't like it. But to those of you in the room who have philosophy degrees, you are going, well, wait a minute, Tony. If you want religion answers then you go to Jesus. But if you want philosophy answers, then you go to Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, right? But you don't go to Jesus for these philosophy answers. And I think you're wrong. It's not true at all. In fact, I want to show you something that Paul says in chapter 1. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything and was created and is supreme over all creation. For through Him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through Him and for Him. Everything was created through Jesus and for Jesus. Here's why this matters. The builder determines the value of the thing being built. The builder determines the value of the thing being built. Let me give you an example. Did you know? Did you know that the most expensive watch brand in the world is the Patek Philippe? Go ahead and raise your hand if you knew that already. Very good. Very good. It started in 1841. The company started in 1841. It was a partnership between Antony Patek and Adrian Philippe. And they're known to make the most complex watches in the world. Their normal production watches range from $10,000 to $50,000. Those are the ones that they sell on a regular basis with custom pieces easily ranging into six, even seven figures. If you're anything like me, and, and I'm just, I'm hearing that, and, and I read that, and I'm going, a million dollars for a watch? Ultimately, this is an object whose sole purpose is to tell me what time it is. If you look at the back of the room, you're going to see, everybody wave to the people in the sound room, by the way, also. Right? <laughs> they don't get enough love. But if you look back there by the sound room, you're going to see a clock that we paid $22 for on Amazon. I can see that guy from across the room. I'm going to argue that that's even more useful than this million-dollar Patek Philippe. At the end of the day, 
A Timex will tell me the time just as effectively as a Patek Philippe. So what makes this watch so much more expensive? Well, certainly the, the materials being used are going to be different in a Timex than they are in a Patek Philippe. Uh, and, and we know that that's, that matters, right? White, gold, platinum, diamonds, all of these things are going to be used in this expensive watch in a Timex. I don't know what it's made out of. Uh, but, but here's the real difference. A Timex is manufactured in a very efficient assembly line way. A lot of it is automated, whereas a Patek Philippe is hand-assembled by a certified master, by somebody whose specific job it is to make these watches, who has been trained specifically to do that. And then once the watch is assembled, it is reviewed in minute detail by a master craftsman, by a master artisan who has done this for years and years and puts a very prestigious stamp of approval on this watch. It's painstakingly checked until it is up to their standards. And what we find is that the builder determines the value of the thing being built. I'm not going to buy a Patek Philippe watch. You're going, I know, because you don't, that doesn't, that math doesn't work. We know you're not buying one of those, Tony, right? Okay. Um, I'm not going to buy one. If, if I ever had enough money to buy one, I wouldn't buy one. That's just not the way that I roll. But somebody does. Somebody does buy a Patek Philippe watch, and so they can charge what they do for the watch. And the reason that people buy it is because it has the name Patek Philippe on it. The builder determines the value of the thing being built. Let me give you another example. Some of you may not care very much about watches. Some of you may not care very much about this example either. There are cars in the world. Um, Some of them are reasonably priced. Some of them aren't. Enzo Ferrari, for example, uh, used to make cars until he passed away. And, uh, and, And that car maker carries on in his name to this day. Ferraris are vehicles designed to get you from point A to point B, a little bit quicker than some other automobiles, but their lowest model, it's called the Ferrari California, comes in at about $180,000. Its job is to get you from point A to point B. That means it's about 10 times more expensive than Henry Ford's base model. The Ford Fiesta will start out a little over $12,000, right? So, These two cars are designed to get you from point A to point B. One is over 10 times more expensive. Why? Attention to detail. It is specifically crafted by people whose job it is to do this one thing. I make seats for Ferraris. I make steering wheels for Ferraris. I make this one component of an engine for Ferrari. And the builder determines the value of the thing being built. One more example. There was a neighborhood close to where I grew up, and it was comprised solely of prefabricated homes. By, they were built by a man named Paul Saylor. And he had a manufacturing plant, and, and he had all these different homes and all the components. So he had a catalog, and you could pick the catalog, I want this house, and then the truck would show up, and it would have the home, and they would take it off the truck, and they would assemble it. The whole thing would take a couple of days. 
And so there was like seven or eight different styles of homes in this neighborhood. And, and they were reasonably priced. They were great homes. They last well. The, the community's still there. It's, it's great. Uh, but there were seven or eight different styles of homes, and he produced tons of them. There's, there's neighborhoods like that all over northwest Indiana. What do you think would cost more today? Uh, a home designed by Paul Saylor or a home designed by Frank Lloyd Wright? Frank Lloyd Wright, right? What's the difference? Both of them provide a roof over your head. They give you warmth in the winter and cool in the summer, and they keep the rain off of you. What's the difference? Frank Lloyd Wright decided that he didn't care how many homes he produced. He wanted to make sure that every detail about the homes that he produced was exactly the way he wanted it to be. The builder determines the value of the thing being built. Why do I bring all this up? Wait, why, did, why did you have to endure this lecture about watches and cars and architecture? Why do I bring all of this up? Because you were created by Jesus. You were created by Jesus, and the builder determines the value of the thing being built. Now, some of you are going, wait, wait a minute, I was, I was created by God. What do you mean I was created by Jesus? Didn't do that, did he? Well, remember what we said last week? Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. So when we read about Jesus, we're reading about God. When we think about Jesus, we're thinking about God. When we talk about Jesus, we're talking about God. That's why Jesus in the Gospel of John says this, I and the Father are one. All things were created by Jesus, including you. I want you to listen to how David described this in the Old Testament. He says, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and you knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous and how well I know it. So who are you? You are the creation of Jesus. And nothing you could do would make you more valuable than you already are. You could wear a Patek Philippe in your Ferrari on the way to your Frank Lloyd Wright mansion and you would not be more valuable than you are right now because you were created by Jesus. You want to talk about attention to detail? You are far more intricate. You are far more complex than a Patek Philippe. You were created by Jesus who knows every hair on your head. You were created by Jesus who fine-tuned you with specific passions and abilities and the likes of which the world has never seen. You were created by Jesus who knit you together in your mother's womb. You were created by Jesus and you are valuable to Him. So valuable, in fact, that He rescued you at the expense of His own life. So if your question is, who am I? You. You are the precious creation of Jesus. Patek Philippe may be the most expensive watch in the world, but you are the most valuable thing ever created. You. You are the most valuable thing ever created. That's who you are. That's who you are. 
Okay, so that's who you are, but why am I here? Why am I here? Did you know, maybe some of you knew this, maybe some of you didn't, did you know that crows in New York City have high cholesterol? Did you know that? By the way, I'm not making that up. Here's the article. And that makes sense if you, if you start to think about it a little bit. I'm sorry the font's so small. I didn't intend for you to actually read that. It's just there so you can know I'm not making this up. All right. Uh, if we think about it, it starts to make sense. Crows are scavengers. They eat what people leave behind. They pick up what people drop. They're very much a product of their environment. And in New York City, what people are leaving behind is pizza. Because New York-style pizza really isn't very good. There, I said it, okay? Anybody, any of my friends from New York, deal with it. Your pizza's not great, all right? So here's my question. What would the crows pick up from me? What would they pick up from me? Would they pick up high cholesterol? Maybe they'd pick up anger problems. Would they pick up a judgmental spirit? Would they become really superficial? Would they start to develop a wandering eye? What would the crows pick up from me? Or maybe, maybe I pray that this is true. Maybe they would pick up love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control so that then they could see my good works and begin to glorify my Father who is in heaven. What would the crows pick up from me? What do the people I see on a regular basis get from me? That's how we answer that question because what we're here for is to reflect the glory of Jesus. We are to reflect the glory of Jesus. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what skill set you have. And some of you have incredible skills. I mean, some of you have absolutely incredible skills. I am amazed by the things that you all do on a regular basis. I was in an elders meeting on Wednesday night, and one of our elders, I'm not going to tell you his name except for it's Jeff. That came out wrong. Sorry, Jeff Smith. Anyway, one of our elders was, uh, was just talking to her, having a conversation, and it came out that he was able to recite the ag cry from Purdue verbatim. And, and then after he did that, he rolled right into the engineering cry from Purdue. And I understood about two and a half words of what he said, and it was very impressive. Right? I just They were big polysyllabic monsters all smushed together in some way that rhymed. And so you do incredible things on a regular basis. You have absolutely brilliant minds and incredible leadership skills. Some of you do the impossible job of being a stay-at-home parent. Some of you farm in a way that can't be learned at a very high level. Some of you understand numbers in an incredible way. Some of you have the most incredible people skills that I've ever seen. And while all of those things are great, that's how God specifically wired you. Those are secondary functions. Because our purpose is to point people to Jesus with everything we do. I'm a preacher. My job is to point people to Jesus with everything I do. 
Every thought, every action, every reaction, every facial expression, every email, text, Facebook post, Instagram story, and conversation should be about pointing people to Jesus so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That is what we have been specifically designed to do. I was reminded of that recently. A friend of mine sent me a quote. He thought I would like it. And here's what it said. Simply says, it's hard for the world to believe that a God they can't see loves them when a church they can see doesn't seem to like them. I don't know what that does to you, but that hit me pretty hard. Why are we here? We're here to live in a way that reminds people of how much God loves them. How much God loves them. That's why we're here. And that's, that's what we're here for. We are the precise creation of Jesus, fine-tuned to reflect His glory. We are God's creation whom He loves and has redeemed at the highest price. And we are here to know Him and make Him known. Now, a common pushback that, that I think I'm going to have from this sermon is some of you are going to say, well, I don't, I don't really like that answer very much. I'd, I'd rather have a different answer. I don't like your answer very much. And my answer is, you don't have to like it. It's okay if you don't like it. We don't decide truth based on likability. Maybe I should say that again because that's an important takeaway. We don't decide truth based on likability. So I want to I illustrate it this way. I'm going to do something very non-controversial, something we can all agree on this morning. There won't be any disagreements about this. It's just a really easy thing that we can all agree on this morning. You ready? The best school in Indiana is Notre Dame. You guys ready? You get, you're all good with that, right? <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you have any... Uh, emails that you'd like to send me. My email address is luke at mtc. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, let's take an example of that. Um, something, we don't get to decide truth based on likability. Two plus two equals four, right? Two plus two equals four, right? Very good. Thank you very much. What if somebody said, well, I don't really like that answer. I don't care if you like it. It's true. Sit down and be quiet. Your feelings have no bearing on whether or not something's true how truth works and you can choose to accept it or you can choose to reject it but it doesn't alter the fact that it's true we can accept the truth we can reject it we have that freedom but i promise you something if you know the truth the truth will set you free what do we do with that how does that matter to us well when we understand our value, and make no mistake about it, you, right now, as you exist right now, you are valuable to God. And when we understand our value, we don't have to try to create value. When we understand we're loved, we don't have to try to create love. When we understand that we are significant, we don't have to try to create significance. We can just rest in the fact that we are God's. And he loves us. 
And He thinks we are valuable and He thinks we're significant. We don't have to try to create value. We don't have to try to create love. We are free to live a life where our value doesn't depend on what we can buy or what we produce or what people think of us or how many likes we get. And when we're unchained from that, we can begin to let our light shine before men in such a way that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Because our Father in heaven is good. He's good. He, he is the master craftsman who created master craftsmen. And as He looks out over all of His creation, at stars and moons and oceans and mountains and sunset and hills and valleys, waterfalls and everything that draws breath, He looks at us and He declares us to be His masterpiece. You're more valuable in some watch. You are the masterpiece of God. And you were designed to lead people to Him. Let's pray.